Hello, and welcome to the human side of healing. My name is Nate Verhagen, and I'm a medical student at the Medical College of Wisconsin and the host of this podcast, which provides a bridge to a more connected learning community where we share and celebrate the personal narratives of those embarking on a journey through medicine. This podcast is separate from my work as a medical student and is not associated with the Medical College of Wisconsin. In every episode, we invite a member of our learning community to share their story. It's a platform not just about medical pursuits, but about the individuals behind them, their challenges, passions, and the unique paths they follow. Our aim is to foster a sense of togetherness, understanding, and support among those who are collectively dedicated to caring for others. Whether you're a fellow student, a faculty member, or just intrigued by the personal dimensions of the medical field, join us in uncovering the stories that often go untold behind the scrubs. Hello, everyone. Today is January 13th, 2024, and we have us uh, have with us Gopika Santhal Kumar, who is a fifth-year MD-PhD student at the Medical College of Wisconsin. We're at my apartment. Um, we got some chocolate mint tea from Rishi Tea, and I'll just give you a brief intro um, of Gopika, then we can start. So, actually, this intro took me a little bit because I wanted to look up her whole resume. She's an <laughs> extremely accomplished person. Um, in many, many respects. I'm just going to give you her um, academic accomplishments, but she's super impressive in other areas as well, which is why we wanted to have her on. So Gopika is a fifth-year MD-PhD student at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison with a Bachelor's of Science in Biomedical Engineering. Her research is focused on understanding mechanisms of human microvascular dysfunction and she is funded by the American Heart Association Predoctoral Fellowship, and she defends her PhD thesis this spring. Um, she was recently awarded the Elaine W. Raines Early Career Investigator Award by the American Heart Association. This was super cool because this was people who were, I think, young young professors in their field, and, and Gopika won as a, as a student, which is pretty amazing. Um, she like hates me as I'm introducing her right now, but um, <laughs> she won best medical student presentation at Academic Surgical Congress 2023. Also, keep in mind these are all the accomplishments I know of. There are so many more. Um, and then she's been really involved in a lot of really cool. Pa- I would call them like passion projects, things she really cares about. So, um, Society of Asian Acad- Society of Asian Academic Surgeons Communications Committee Chair. Um, she's an F1 doctor mentor. Vice Chair of the Association for Women Surgeons. Um, And then she kind of participates in two different labs um, at MCW. So she works with Dr. Julie Freed, who is an anesthesiologist that focuses on cardiovascular research. And then the uh, ANAI lab, which is with Dr. Anai Katari, which is the lab that I'm in with her. And that's kind of how we know each other. Um, Finally, she's an extremely accomplished researcher, over 60 publications. H index of seven. Okay, we're done. Was <laughs> that good? Did I cover everything? <laughs> oh, you did good. Oh, that was, you know, a lot of times I think we don't sit down and kind of reflect on life or like you get to medical school and you never feel kind of like, like you've done something because you're constantly just like, oh, what's the next thing I have to do? Next thing I have to do. So um, as embarrassing as it was to hear <laughs> you read all of that, 
it was kind of heartwarming to be like, oh, maybe I've done a couple things in the five years that I've been here. So it was just, I don't know, it, it, it felt kind of, it was very heartwarming. Thank did, you, Nate. That did, was sweet. Did you, uh, <laughs> did you think I knew all that stuff? Did I cover everything? No, I were, had, you, were you surprised? I had, <laughs> no, I had no idea you, you knew all of that stuff or that a lot of it was public. So that was, that was yeah. kind of cool. That's all from a just, Google search. Really? So, yeah. Oh, but, I um, should Google myself. <laughs> yeah, you should. And also, I just kind of want to explain um, how I know Gopika. So I actually knew Gopika in high school. She did not know me. I learned this very recently. <laughs> um, we actually both went to Brookfield Central High School. Uh, Gopika was two years older than me, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and Probably. That... I, was a, I graduated 2015. Okay, and that's 2017. Okay. Um, so then we both went to Madison, did not know each other there. Although I still knew her from high school. And then uh, med school, ended up working in the same research lab and became friends. And I've had a ton of cool experiences, I think, over the past couple of years. I was, as I was kind of preparing for this, I was reflecting, like, man, we've done some cool stuff. We've got to travel. Yeah. Um, I think definitely, as I think about my medical school career, you are a huge part of it, which is amazing. Aww. So, like, um, with that being said, I think we can kind of start and learn more about you because that's why I think a lot of people... I chose, I wanted to interview you because not only are you a really accomplished person, I think you've done so much stuff in your um, family and friends. Uh, it's extremely, it's a vibrant life and I wanted to learn more about it. So Absolutely. starting, like, tell me about your childhood growing up, your family. I know you're super close with your sister. Yeah. Um, just tell me all about that. Yeah, happy to. Um, and first off, thank you for having me here. This is, this is super fun. Um, so I actually was born in India. So I, um, until about sixth grade, I, yeah, until sixth grade, I lived in Hosur, which is a small town kind of on the outskirts of Bangalore, which is probably a bigger city that people know mm-hmm. of. But I lived in Tamil Nadu. Um, and it was just uh, me, my mom and dad, and then my sister was actually born 10 years after I was born. Wow. So um, we have a pretty big age difference. And I think, funny enough, we always used to fight when we were little because she would always want to tag along. And I was a teenager and I'd be like, no, you can't come with me. Uh, but I think um, ever since she hit middle school, uh, it's been, like you said, a very good relationship. And um, I absolutely adore her. So it's really fun spending time with her. Um, but I moved to um, the U.S. in sixth grade, like I mentioned, and we kind of moved around quite a bit. So we were in Delaware, and then a big portion of my middle and high school was in Boston. And then towards the end of high school <laughs> is when I ended up in Brookfield. So Nate, in my defense, that's why I didn't know you. Yep, yep. I didn't know a lot of people in Brookfield in general. But um, my upbringing um, as a child in general was... Um, I would say kind of unique. I think Mm -hmm. it's part of why um, the idea of the American dream really resonates with me because growing up, you know, we were in a um, really small one bedroom apartment with my family. I remember my grandparents helped us out um, quite a bit. Dad worked at Titan Watches. He had a good job, but um, he actually got his degrees uh, while he was working. So it was after I was born and my mom got her master's after I was born. So, um, you know, I kind of actively watched them kind of go from like a socioeconomic status jump because of their education and dad switching careers and jobs and then he started traveling internationally for work and then that's how we eventually ended up here Um, so I think from a very young age one of the things that was always instilled in me was 
um, education could really elevate your life or change the way you are. Wow. Um, and I think beyond our personal life, my dad kind of, my, not just my dad, my grandparents, everyone kind of instilled in me that it was such an important resource to be educated that mm-hmm. even when we had very little money, dad always set some aside to give it away to people who didn't have it or who we could help. So we've always sponsored children in India. Now I've kind of um, taken up that as well. And I uh, sponsor education for children in India um, with even making like a small stipend. My grandparents always always um, whatever we had gave freely grandma ran free tutoring for students in the village um, so I think my upbringing was really centered around um, a lot of like you know if you get educated well you could really go places mm-hmm. but also like remember the community we come from so try and support those around us so they um, are not just stuck where they are when you're going ahead kind of like the idea of you have to bring your community with you yeah that's amazing yeah. and because it sounds like you have a lot you have so many influences growing up Absolutely. you had your grandparents and you had this experience in india yeah you even moved to united states and you get this experience in boston the east coast then you come to the midwest yeah and um also hearing like your parents too like that what a great role model probably f- uh, you see them working so hard balancing a job and education yeah yeah um th- did they do their education in india yes okay. yes they did and yeah. then the master's degrees were... In- yeah, they all... I'm the first one in my family to study in the U.S. Wow. Even through, like, high school, everything. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and then we're... Sorry, did you grow up in northern India or southern India? Or South like, India. Okay, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Because I know we've talked about food. Oh, yeah. Uh, which we'll talk about more later. But, like, we, we <laughs> yeah. talk about the different foods of different parts of India. Just like... I mean, just like the United States. Yeah. There's different types of food. And I think... I always found that was really interesting. Yeah. Um... So, and also tell me a little bit more, like you mentioned giving back. I think that's a huge part of your mission, your, your academic mission. Even I've seen you mentor so many students, which I think is super admirable. Thank you. Um, tell me more about that. You said your parents kind of give back, your grandparents give back, like what, what in you kind of makes you want to do that? Yeah, honestly, um, I think there was a big switch that kind of flipped in me when I was here senior year of high school. So until senior year of high school, until I moved to Brookfield, I moved and changed schools almost every year. So I never stayed in a school consistently. Wow. Um, part of it was because we moved here and then, you know, our lot, the recession hit. Mm-hmm. So dad had to quickly change jobs and then he kind of had to jump jobs. And there were times when they would spike rent. So we had to move apartments. So mm-hmm. um, every year we kind of, for some reason or the other, had to move to a different location. Um, and so I had to change school. So until I I came to Brookfield I feel like I didn't really get the experience of like I for lack of like better terms like really sitting down and experiencing America like mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't really get to experience what it was like here um but here I just uh you know we all know the Brookfield community right it's it's in general a very affluent community the mm-hmm. school is really well funded we have a lot of resources mm-hmm. um and it's when I was there that um I literally was late to signing up for my ACT or something like that so I had to go take it in one of the Milwaukee public schools And I remember during my ACT, I walked in and the resources that we have in the classroom, first off, was like night and day. Uh It was as if I walked into a school 10 years before what Brookfield was. Mm -hmm. So the resources were um, so different, which was pretty surprising. And then I went into their bathroom and they didn't have running water that day. Uh And I was like, oh my goodness. It was, I didn't realize that the, the, um kind of environments that I was used to seeing very commonly in India existed in the U.S. too. Mm -hmm. And I think in a way, even though in Boston, I kind of went to smaller schools that didn't have the best resources, they were still far better than what we saw in India. But coming here and seeing things that were just so much worse in certain areas, just, you know, within a 10 mile radius, Mm -hmm. um, was pretty stark to me. And I think that's when I realized that 
Um, yes, a lot of the work that I did globally or trying to give back to people in India was really important, but mm -hmm. there was a lot that needed to be done in the local community too. Mm -hmm. So um, that's when I started working closely with United Way. And back then I helped um, organize like school supply drives to help students there. Um, I supported other volunteering programs there. I was their community engagement chair for the summer, or I worked with the community engagement department um, for the for the summer there. Um, and tried to do my little part as a high schooler. Wow. Uh, but then when I got to undergrad, I think that kind of just stuck with me. And mm -hmm. I wanted to continue um, with each state of my career, whatever little I could do to make education a little more accessible to people to begin with. But beyond that, just resources in general. So I tried to volunteer whenever I could. I tried to um, mentor as many students as I could. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's definitely been... A lot more prominent since I was able to come to medicine. It's like a weird phenomenon when you get into medical school. We actually have enough life experiences, weirdly, <laughs> um, to to start helping the next generation. Um, and I think that's honestly one of the most fulfilling parts yeah. of being in medicine is uh, is seeing people that are like you know I have high school students who I work with a lot of students, especially from our immigrant community who mm -hmm. probably came from similar backgrounds to me and don't really have parents that know how to navigate the education system or a support system to navigate the system here. And a lot of them talking about taking similar paths to me or um, going into medicine and kind of knowing how to do that, not knowing what even shadowing is, things like that is mm -hmm. so like, I don't know, fulfilling to see them do that. Yeah. Um, and recently I took a, a student in lab, Zach, uh, he is an undergrad student um, in Oshkosh and he um, decided he's gonna apply MSTP. So I have uh, my, my first MSTP applicant, that's amazing. Um, which is, is pretty awesome. Yeah. And that's like finally, it's this materialization of your mentorship, oh. which has gotta be, make oh, you feel super sweet. great. No, I think it's, it's more about just, I think we have a lot of incredibly talented students out there. And mm -hmm. I just, it's about giving them and setting them up with the resources. Cause I remember growing up, I didn't even know what to ask. Like, you know, we always say, go find a mentor. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know what to, how to do that mm -hmm. or like where to go find that. And what do you ask after you find a mentor? Yeah. Um, and I think just knowing those things is, is already a big step for a lot of people. Um, so just these awesome students who haven't been able to quite have the support they need to go do that. And now they're able to, it's just, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I'm a huge fan. Well, that's awesome because we are going to jump into mentorship next. I'm yeah. going to pour this tea. Yes, I'm going to see if it's really like, <laughs> I'm going to pour it close to the microphone to see if people can hear it. Yeah. If they can taste the chocolate mint. <laughs> All right, here you are. I should Thank pour you. yours first. I oh, apologize. totally fine. Um, Thank you. Yeah, of course. So... Um, kind of talking about your high school experience, was that hard, um, hard growing up where you were jumping from school to school? Was it hard to make friends? Not only because you were coming from a different country, yeah. but now you're jumping, you're not only the new girl, you're the new girl from a different country and you're jumping from school to school. That oh, yeah. had to have been really difficult. It was pretty difficult. Um, I won't, I won't sugarcoat that. And I think the hardest moves were when I first moved here because mm -hmm. I was in a major culture shock mm -hmm. and with the you know, little things like with the with the recession happening right as soon as we moved here, we had to be very uh, careful about what we were spending from our savings because mm -hmm. we didn't know what the next job would look like for dad and when that would happen. Um, so I would wear, you know, things that were fashionable in India and go to school. And that was like, you know, a bright yellow pants with a bedazzled mm -hmm. girl on it with neon pink shirt. And mm -hmm. like, that was definitely not the fashion in the U.S. That's probably like 70s U.S., <laughs> but that was India at that moment, yeah. right? 
Um, so I already walked in just looking very different. Uh-huh. And, I, and I learned English, but not... Um, not in like an American way where like in school I learned how to study all my stuff in English so it was fine academically but I had no idea what people were saying to me I could not understand the American accent um, and, I, and I feel like that definitely made things very difficult mm-hmm. in making friends and communicating um, but in like the most we, like in a surprising way I think moving from there um, to a different school gave me an opportunity to kind of start fresh mm-hmm. with a new group of people and by then I had learned a little bit about American culture how to you know dress like the kids here <laughs> eventually caught up on the whole English things thanks to Disney Channel oh my gosh <laughs> oh I watched Wizards of Waverly Place and I owe my entire English skills to that shout show. out Selena Gomez <laughs> yes. yes there you go uh, but you know, I I also think, in a way, moving around so much kind of made me more extroverted. Yeah. Um, I was always a talkative person, right. but around people that I knew well. Um, but moving around so much made me very comfortable in walking up to strangers and just being like, hey, let's be friends or, you know, tell me about your life. And I think, um, in hindsight, that probably set me up for a lot of success now because, you know, we're in academia. We constantly go to, like, conferences. Mm-hmm. We constantly are in environments where it's completely new people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be pretty overwhelming. But I think, in a way, I kind of feel very comfortable in those situations because mm-hmm. I'm so used to being the around new strangers. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, my gosh. So yeah. that, I just want to summarize that for people because that is, like, so cool. So uh, coming to the United States, you were the new girl, and that feels bad. Yeah. And you're not a great communicator because English was not your first language. Yeah. And then on top of it, there's this culture shock. But now, like, as long as I've known you, communication has been one of your best skills. Well, like, I mean, how crazy is that? And now, I mean, that experience totally shaped you. And I think that's amazing. For me, it's amazing to hear because I'm like, what makes this person the person they are? And I've seen GoPika at conferences. It's amazing. The way you, you, the way you're able to know so many people and connect with them on different levels. I mean, I imagine some of that background has allowed you to connect with people from so many different areas. I would, I would think so. I mean, they say like life is the the best school, right? Like the school of hard knocks or something. Uh, it's it's so true. I I owe life to one of them. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, you me- talked about mentorship. Let's talk about. Um, one, let's talk about the importance of mentorship to you. You kind of already touched on that. And then, um, the most important mentors in your life, people who have been critical both in your like, um, social life, the way you hold yourselves, your, your professionalism. Um, and then also just maybe on like the academic side as well. Oh man, that's a, that's an excellent question because <laughs> I have, I have so many, I think growing up, Maybe both mentors and role models to me always were both my um, dad and my grandma, right? Mm -hmm. My dad always modeled um, kind of the ambitious drive, but also social service. And my Mm -hmm. grandma very much did the same thing for me. So I feel like I looked up to them um, quite a bit, and I still do. And after moving here, um, honestly, the entire reason I got into college or even figured out how to do anything in the American education system after I moved here, I would owe it to Mr. Grow. He's... um, did you have him as a guidance he was, counselor? He was my guidance counselor oh, as well. I owe so much to him. And funny enough, actually, he came up to see, um, I was invited to give a TEDx Madison uh, talk, oh, and wow. he actually came up for it. And I'm hoping he'll actually come to my uh, PhD dissertation as well. So I've kind of maintained that um, relationship with him yeah. over the years. Now he's my sister's guidance counselor. Wow. Um, but I didn't, I didn't go to the bestest of schools in Boston, so I honestly didn't have a lot of um, guidance mm-hmm. in what to even do, how to apply for colleges. And when I moved here, I feel like he literally 
held my hand through the entire process. Like mm-hmm. I didn't know that I could take the ACT instead of the SAT or that they were equivalent, that there were subject tests that you can take mm-hmm. um, or that there's like some applications that you go through the common app and there was others that you can submit. Like I, I had no idea. And this man literally just guided me through the whole process. Wow. Um, so I, you know, I think, I think he was always has been one of my best mentors. And then when I got to undergrad, I met uh, Dr. Randall Kimple and he completely changed the course of what I thought I was going to do mm-hmm. where I got, I, I went to undergrad Funny enough, you know, I always tell people, oh, I was passionate about healthcare. That's why I went to BME. <laughs> Honestly, that's a little bit of BS. <laughs> I was a confused high schooler, and I guess I'm old enough now that I can actually tell a real story. <laughs> yeah. I was a confused Please high tell. schooler. I, when I applied to colleges, I applied pre-law, architecture, and biomedical engineering. Just three things that I thought sounded cool. Well, they're all really me. closely related, Yes, right? exactly. <laughs> yeah, just very overlapping careers. <laughs> And then, honestly, I picked Madison because they gave me the most money to go there. So it was the most affordable. And ranking-wise, it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I showed up on a game day for my, like, visit of the school. And oh, I, I'm a big red color. Like, I love red. And you just see a sea of red. Mm-hmm. Everyone looked so happy. And I was like, great. I feel like I can be happy here. Like, that was the extent of my decision-making and picking where I was going to mm-hmm. go. It was just, that's it. And then the degree that I happened to get into there was biomedical engineering. So I was like, I guess I'm studying engineering. <laughs> wow. Um, but I, so, it, that, you have to apply to that, and that's I pretty did. competitive to get into. It is. Yeah. It is. Um, it was a, a wonderful major. I yeah. think that's where BME is kind of uniquely positioned to support a lot of entrepreneurial thinking. Mm-hmm. That's where I really got into design thinking. I really thought I was going to be an entrepreneur for a while. My friend and I wanted to start our own design company. We did like a small version of it and started a student mentors club where we would do like we would build some of the craziest ideas that people didn't know would work or not. So it was like high risk projects and we would try to prototype it and see if it could even work. And it was so much fun. I loved it. So I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do for my career. Um, but um, Madison, as you know, has a ton of research opportunities. Yep. So I uh, took advantage of that and just applied to research programs that were around. And I, um, that's how I met um, first, Dr. Gillian, who kind of introduced me the idea of research. And mm-hmm. a year after being in her lab, I was like, oh, uh, she did a lot of like glaucoma type work. I was like, well, let me see what else is out there. And I joined um, Randy's lab, just completely out of chance. He was one of the people that I cold emailed and he said, come join. Mm-hmm. He was a physician, is a physician scientist and was just a phenomenal mentor. Mm-hmm. He taught me the, the really the deep intellectual side of research and I think that's what got me so excited because it was so creative it was so much critical thinking Mm -hmm. Um, and I would see him running clinical trials based on what we did in the lab and really care for patients Um, and that that really satisfied the one-on-one you know immediate kind of gratification side that I craved too and I was like great Randy I want to grow up and be you and he's like well I guess you have to do MD PhD if you want to be me (laughs) and I was like sign me up (laughs) and that's kind of like the innovator architect in you in a way where you're like you get to kind of see this vision see this plan critical thing get through yes exactly exactly and then I mean that was that he just completely changed the course of my life and I still owe that to him so much um what did you guys research uh we studied uh head and neck cancer and lung cancer and looking at ways to sensitize them to radiation therapy so basically trying to make radiation more effective in treating them okay awesome and yeah was that mice was that uh, yeah cells in vitro a combination of them so we had human cell lines and then he had this really cool xenograph model where he could implant um human based tumors Mm -hmm. into mice models to study them Mm -hmm. so it was it was really cool i did not work a lot with the mice you 
you know me, a lot of the work that I do here now is all on human tissue too. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very squeamish about working with mice. Uh, but it was a it was an intensely cool model. As a fellow mouse yeah. worker myself, I I, <laughs> I second that. I thankfully I had some great um great mentors yeah. who who would fall on the sword for me, and if they had to do things to I mice, know. you know, they would they would help out, which is nice because I I do think that is a tough part of basic science research. Exactly. Really, really important, but like it is difficult. Which is why when I got here, I met Dr. Freed, who I owe the rest of my career to. <laughs> um, she is just, I think. If I want to grow up and just be someone like in the whole way, like not just the research part, just like them as a human being, mm-hmm. it would probably be her. Mm-hmm. Um, she's just such a cool women in science role model. Mm-hmm. She is uh, an incredible scientist, just so innovative, an amazing clinician mm-hmm. um, and a really good mentor. She mm-hmm. knows exactly when to give, um, you know, like the positive love and also like the, the hey, do better. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so important to kind of do both. <laughs> Um, and of course, you know, Dr. Kodari, we can't, we, <laughs> we, can't, <laughs> we cannot can't ignore leave him. him out. Um, and I still, um, Dr. Kothari, if you're listening, I still claim I'm your first student. So thank you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's been phenomenal in wanting to go into medicine. So just so many mentors I owe so much to. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Kothari is both ment- a mentor for both of us. Yes. Obviously super yes. important. Um, I think uh, you talked about. Dr. Free, this like unconditional positive regard while also being very honest with you, like, hey, yeah. get it together. I think a lot of good mentors give you that. Yes. Um, they, they give you a ton of support. I know Dr. Katari provides a ton of support um, and it really allows you to like do your own work, yeah. um, which I think is, is amazing. and something I've learned, especially you, you mentioned like how we are at a point now where we finally have the resources to mentor, which is a weird feeling it because- is. Um, we can't finan- like financially really support people, but we have life experiences that allow us to support people, which is so unique. Yeah. Um, and it's something I've never had the opportunity to do in my entire life. And it sounds like you've done the same. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you know, women in science, women in medicine, that mentorship sphere is so important for a lot of women in medicine. Absolutely. Um, so you, that's kind of where I want to go into the work that you've done with your own mentorship, your ability to mentor others. So I think I'd love for you to talk about your work with um, Association of Women Surgeons and then also like F1 Doctors, I think is, those, yeah. are, those are two of your pursuits that I think are really, you're really passionate about. Absolutely. Um, so the Association of Women Surgeons, actually this I owe to, you know what, I, I, I feel like I need to submit You have so many mentors. <laughs> I have so many mentors and honestly that's, you know, when they say find yourself a mentorship network, they don't, it, it's a it's a very real advice. I think you can't just rely on one person to do and be everything for you. Um, in that regard, the guy that got me into surgery to begin with was Dr. Mogul. And he was the one that found this Association of Women's Surgeons Medical Student Committee and said, you have to apply. I think this will be a great opportunity for you. Um, and I applied to be their mentorship coordinator because I thought it was a really cool idea. Um, and we basically organized this six month long mentorship program that pairs students nationally, especially from institutions where there's not a lot of female surgeon role models currently um, with surgeons kind of throughout the country and the world. And we've kind of been running this program. This is the third year now. So I ran it for the last two years as the mentorship coordinator. And now um, as the vice chair for the committee, I've been more overseeing a, a program evaluation component of it, seeing how much it really helps these students. Uh, but it was such a cool um, opportunity because you don't realize, you know, I, as much as I owe so much to my male mentors and they've been nothing but incredibly supportive in promoting my careers, there are things that I think the uh, women that in my life, like 
even though I mentioned Dr. Freed before that, I worked with Dr. Carmen Burgum and I still work with her. She's at WashU, a phenomenal radiation oncologist and a physician scientist. And I think both Dr. Freed and Dr. Burgum really embody um, the success of a physician scientist, but they've also been very honest about um, certain things that we experience as, as uh, women that mm-hmm. kind of um, not necessarily get talked about as mm-hmm. much. They even talked about things like, you know, family planning, what that was like. Or, you know, I remember when I got my AHA pre-doctoral fellowship, there was someone that said, well, I don't know why you got it and my student didn't, probably because you're a woman. And, and I was completely taken aback because I had worked so hard to get that fellowship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Dr. Freed was like, I can't tell you the number of times people assume I got something over them because I was a woman. And it's such mm-hmm. a difficult thing to just grapple with. And we talk about imposter syndrome all the time, but, oh, that... That really got me thinking. I was like, wait, is this real? Like, do you really think it happened? And yeah. she's like, absolutely not. Just, just you know, um, it's, it's things like that, that I think you really need female mentors in your life uh, to kind of navigate in that mm-hmm. way. So um, I think that that's been something that the mentorship program through AWS is able to provide to a lot of medical students. And this year, we've actually paired 100 medical students. So that's how big our program's wow. grown in the last few years. Yeah. And I think like with, uh, we, like in a male-dominated field that medicine wa- is and was, yeah. and it's it's obviously improving. Like you really do need mentors because you do navigate challenges that like most medical school is challenging. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like women definitely experience some unique challenges, and like with my my sister just got into medical school, yeah. and like so I think having a sister for me, I like I still I try to consider some of those things, and like. Um, that's why the programs like this are so important because Absolutely. they are unique challenges. You need mentors that have done the thing yeah. for you to like navigate some of those difficult times. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and F1 doctors is kind of, you know, we talked about challenges that, um, that women in science continue to face. And I will say we've made great strides. Mm-hmm. Like there's been a lot, a lot of amazing work, um, that leaders in the field, females have especially pioneered. So I think it's getting better. We're mm-hmm. doing a lot better. Um, and I think the F1 doctors kind of filled uh, my cup in the other sphere that I think is very integral to my identity, right? Being an international student, I think we make up like less than 2% of the entire medical student community. Mm-hmm. And then you take MD, PhDs and you're at like 0.5% or mm-hmm. less. So there's, there's really not a lot of us, but being on a visa puts a lot of different restrictions on you and mm-hmm. what you're able to participate in. Um, and the visas that you might need when you apply for residencies. Um, and if, you know, I'm grateful that my MDPC program is funded, but if it wasn't funded and I was doing MD only, I'd have to basically show that I have proof of the entire amount of medical school's tuition in my pocket. Wow. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's very challenging for students to really navigate that and get in mm-hmm. uh, to medical school in general. So I think F1 Doctors really provided a community for all of those students to kind of reach out to each other um, and find support and mentorship on a lot of these unique challenges that I think pre-med advisors aren't fully aware of yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And F1 Doctors actually set me on a unique path in being able to conduct a lot of research um, and bring to light a lot of these issues that students are facing. So we've um, published a couple papers on that and there's an amazing student who reached out to me, Akila. Um, She's a graduate of Harvard. 
who's working on an amazing manuscript about really quantifying these challenges and financial challenges and the lack of information for international students. Mm -hmm. So I think F1 doctors, you know, beyond just the, the mentorship part of it, connected me to an entire cohort of people who are really working towards making this better. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it connected me to people like Dr. Dutta and Dr. Zifong, who are all amazing surgeons who went through the same path that I went through. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a, a very cool community that's really trying to do something about um, of making things a little more accessible and navigatable for international students. So. Those are some, some, some amazing people you just named. Yeah. Um, now, now, as someone who doesn't really know much about that experience, the yeah. international student experience, what, you know, what hurdles have you seen that you've currently faced? And then yeah. like what, what challenges do you foresee yourself facing kind of in the future? Yeah, so I think the, the money component was a big one. Um, but outside of that, when you think about applying and getting into medical school, so I had, um, I want to say at that time, wow, I feel old saying at that time. When I was applying <laughs> five years ago. When I was your age? When I was your age. Um, I had about 12 schools that publicly said, yes, we'll take applications from international students that applied MD only. And an additional 12 that also accepted us or considered our application for MD PhD. And, um... After I'd gone through those interviews, there were a couple schools that actually reached out to me and said, sorry, this year we're actually not taking international students. And they kept my application fees. Oh, my God. Um, so, you know, the policies around that are constantly changing mm -hmm. and it's not constantly being updated, mm -hmm. which I understand, right? Like we're such a small group of students with such unique policies that I understand that it's a lot for student, for schools to update it, but mm -hmm. it really influences uh, people who are already kind of here from a different country trying to spend money in the US, it's, it's, it's a lot. Um, and then after I got acceptances, there was a school that waitlisted me and I don't, I want to be as vague about this as possible <laughs> to not call anyone out. Yeah. Um, the program director was kind enough to call me and say, um, you know, I want you to know we really want to accept you. We just need to figure out some funding and, and policy situations before we can. Mm. But right now we're limited in it. So I think there's a lot of things that happen in the background that limit international students from getting acceptance in the first place, mm -hmm. um, which is pretty challenging. And then when you apply for residencies, um, right now, if you're on an F1 visa, you either need a J1 or an H1B visa. And usually sponsoring those visas takes money from that program mm -hmm. and people who have the expertise to apply for them, right? So now you've already limited it to programs who can supply those visas. Mm -hmm. And then H-1Bs are a little more desirable because they allow you to work here. They allow you to eventually apply for a green card if that's of interest to people. Mm -hmm. um, versus a J-1 for a lot of countries have stipulations that after you're done on it, you're supposed to go back and work in your country for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Which as you can imagine, doing that and coming back and getting an academic job in the US or coming back to, yeah. it's quite challenging. Super difficult. Um, so, I think that really poses a lot of challenges for international students as well in trying to find programs that will sponsor them the right visa. And um, understandably, there's program directors who've expressed that given the choice between two equivalent applicants, and if one is international and requires all those additional hurdles, sometimes it's easier to take the non-international student. Right. Um, so it's that's kind of where the future challenges kind of uh, come up in that regard as well. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciate you sharing that because I think a lot of people don't understand that. And I personally, I I yeah. knew, I knew some of the challenges, but it is really it's gotta be difficult um, looking into the future, knowing that you're almost handicapped in in sending these applications because even if you're this outstanding applicant, which you yeah. are, you. you know, I think it is difficult because these schools are now saying, well, we're gonna take a hit um, by taking you on, exactly, and, and, and like. But, I, you know, I, hopefully they see, you know, your value and worth that you can bring to a program, right? Yeah. Because 
Um, I mean, all of medicine is about harm reduction versus benefit, uh, harm, harm versus benefit. And I think every medical intervention we do, we think, okay, so what's the number needed to treat? Yeah. What's, the, what's the number needed to harm? And yeah. I think, I think your, uh, number needed to treat is, is really low, you know? Um, and I, you know, and I think yeah. that that's hopefully a balance that they, they understand. It's Thank kind you. of a funny, funny yeah. medical, um, tie in. I but, appreciate the analogy. Nate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'd like to move on to one thing and then we'll go into the little game. But yeah. so what, you know, we talked a lot about academia. What are some of the things you like to do outside, outside of academia, outside of your work in medicine? Yeah. Oh, so much. I, um, big into like fun fitness. So I do a lot of, um, cool exercising classes with my close friends. So we go to like body pump and things like that at the Wisconsin Athletic Center. Um, I recently picked up swimming. I can swim up to a mile now, which is wow. um, in the last couple of months I've built up my distance. So, um, do you swim one mile in your uh, training, like in one day? You're saying? Yeah, oh, yeah, wow. in like a stretch. Yeah, that's very good. Thank you. I've always been a runner, but swimming, I was like, you know what? I'm getting old. I gotta protect my joints. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I love swimming, and it's actually kind of like. It's meditative because uh-huh. you can't listen to music. It's just repetitive sounds of breath. Eventually, when you're doing it right, it sounds rhythmic. Uh-huh. You're just doing that for like 50 minutes, and it's phenomenal. Well, and yeah. I think the the rhythmic breathing is, is huge exactly. because I think it's super easy to get really stressed out when you're swimming. Yes. Swimming is scary to a lot of people. It is. Being comfortable in the water is like, I think that's such a superpower um, oh, because yeah. like, you are, you're depleting yourself of oxygen while you're working out. And then you have to like come up for air. And like you said, you're yep. only hearing yourself breathing. So it's easy to panic when you're, when you're underwater like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's so cool that you're like a mile, a mile in one sitting is like, that's a legitimate swim. Thank you. That's a it's, really, yeah. You feel very good. Were you always a good swimmer? No, no. I learned swimming. Honestly, there was a stint when we were in India that we moved to Malaysia for like three months and came back. Um, and it's during that time that I learned how to swim. And then after that, I kind of like would swim for fun at pool parties. And then I got <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, but I got here and one of my best friends, Natalia, is like a phenomenal swimmer. And she kind of helped me correct my form so that I can actually swim laps efficiently. Amazing. Um, and kind of helped me optimize my breathing so that I could kind of keep up, like you said, uh, and not get <clears throat> exhausted for that whole mile. Yeah. So it's, it's over this past few months that I've kind of really built that up. Wow. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really fun. That's so impressive. I, I, I can't believe I didn't know that. That is amazing. And then what about, okay, sorry. Yeah. I saw, I cut you off. I know you yeah. play guitar. I did. That was another, um, COVID time activity. I've mm-hmm. always wanted to learn it. And I was like, well, it's COVID. I can't really go outside. It seems like a good time to pick up a hobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm nowhere close to as good as you, Nate. I know you picked it up recently too, but, um, yeah. <laughs> I've, love... I've never seen you play. I'm not, I'm not anything special, but. <laughs> no, I love, I love playing the guitar. I've always been into art, which is why the architecture piece came in. Mm-hmm. So when I can spare some time, I like to paint. I like to draw. Um, those are kind of big parts of it. And then I love trying new restaurants. So if there's like cool new restaurants in the area, we talk, we'll talk about food, I'm guessing yeah, at some yeah. point. Um, I'm a big foodie. I love exploring new foods. I love trying new foods. Um, but yeah. And I guess, um, I remember when you sent me questions, you said, you know, what's one thing that people would never know about you? Yeah. Nate, I can't cook for my life. I can't make <laughs> yummy foods. Like all my foods is like kind of edible enough for survival, which is hilarious considering, you know, I'm, I'm in science and I follow protocols and it's like literally like following a recipe, but oh no, cooking is just not it. You're one of the biggest foodies I know. Exactly. And that is so surprising to I me. I don't. But I, I will say, I think it's so, it's interesting to hear all those, all those hobbies. Cause I, I do think like the most impressive people I know, they always are, they're never, um, 
like single faceted. It's yeah. always you're involved in different things. You want to try new things. You want to get better at them. So obviously yeah. no exception here, but fun to hear kind of those different things and yeah. picking up swimming too. Like that is um, like a di- really difficult thing, but I think I'm sure you've seen kind of exponential improvement, which oh, is yeah. that's one of the best parts of swimming is you get good really fast. <laughs> um, yes. Okay. So now we're on to the game segment. Okay. We called it the vital four. Yeah. There's been tons of talk about food and um, I guess for, for any of the listeners, Gopika, Gopika and I have been to, I think, three conferences together. Mm-hmm. Um, we were in Hawaii for, for the Society of Asian Academic Surgeons, which is one of the best conferences. Um, we, we go every year, so we went to Baltimore this most recent year, um, and then we went to Houston together. Yep. Uh, but every time we go, so much of our experience is trying the local flavors. Um, in Hawaii, we had so much sushi. Yes. I, I was sushied out almost. Um, and <laughs> no then, such thing, Nate. Yeah, no such thing. In Houston, we had barbecue. Yes. Oh, uh, that was fun. Yeah, with doc- Dr. Collada is getting mentioned for the second I time. Uh, he, he got us all barbecue. And, and yes. Dr. Van Erendonk, that was um, that was just an outstanding experience. Baltimore? Yeah. What did we have in Baltimore? Oh, again, Dr. Collada. Yeah, we um, tried that. Speakeasy place was phenomenal. Uh-huh. Oh, the the Pittsburgh yes. char. Yes. For those of you who don't know, uh, true steak goers. Uh, I learned this from Dr. Collada. Yeah. They get the Pittsburgh char, which is just like a I don't know how would you describe it. It's like an extreme. Yeah, it's like they char the outside and then the inside still paint. I don't know. It was phenomenal. It was very good. You know, Dr. Collada and Dr. Marandon go on that list of like phenomenal mentors. And funny enough, talking about food. I was I'm so sad you missed the Boston conference know, this year. Um, Dr. Collada took us to this really cool, like, small plates restaurant. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. It was phenomenal. It pains me to hear. So <laughs> That's know. awesome. Nate, I hope you regret not joining us. I know. I do. <laughs> I do. But we'll have, we'll have more experiences, I'm sure. Yes. Um, okay. So back to the vital four. I think what we're going to talk about is our four favorite um, dishes or foods that we've, we've ever had. It could be a homemade meal. It could be a single food item. Um, it could be a food from a restaurant. We're going to each choose four of our favorites of all time. Oh yes. Um, if you want to start. Okay. Are we just going to do one? We'll go one at a time. Exactly. Okay. My all time favorite. Like if it was like, if I could only eat one food ever for Mm -hmm. the rest of my life, I would probably develop heart disease in like the next five (laughs) years, but it would be chicken biryani. Oh, wow. It is, I am obsessed. Or honestly, any biryani. You can put anything in that biryani and I will eat it. Okay, so I, the first time I ever had biryani was, I think, senior year of college. And okay. I haven't had it since, and I absolutely loved it. Okay. So where, like, where, what's the best biryani someone can, can have? So, honestly, I drive an hour out to Buffalo Grove, Illinois. And there's this restaurant there called Nawabi Hyderabadi House. And I love their biryani. I'm not shocked you drive an hour. Yes, cause, cause... and a lot of my closest friends will tell you I've made them sit in the car with me for an hour just for a dinner. <laughs> and I drive them there and make them get biryani and drive back. <laughs> that I'm I'm unsurprised. I'm glad that's an answer that's very true to you. Yes. Um, you know, I did that in Houston, too. So when I landed there, one of my friends, um, who actually you went tried from to MCW to there. Yes. Yeah. Um, he picked me up from the airport, and he's like, what are we doing? And I was like, here's a restaurant 40 minutes from here. Where they sell amazing South Indian biryani, so mm-hmm. we're gonna go have that. And he's like, I expected nothing different. Let's mm-hmm. go. <laughs> yeah, you said this one of the best South Indian food is south of Houston. I yes. totally remember that. Yes. Um, but no, that's a great answer. Um, I am gonna follow it up with peanut butter chicken from QQ Express. 
Oh, Nate. Have you, have you ever had that? Yes, and got incredibly sick. <laughs> yeah, no, but that's fine. That's fine. And I think that's part of the experience. I think you know that going into it. It is a culinary experience that you will not have anywhere oh else. Um, just to describe it, it's like it's fried chicken. It has breading on the outside, and then it has like a sugary peanut butter sauce over the top. It is the best food in the entire world. But like Gopika said, you probably won't feel great afterwards. And that's part of the experience. You know that going into it and it's that good. We talked about ba- balancing the benefits and risks of things. This benefit is so high that I'm willing to get sick afterwards. <laughs> oh, I think for any student that went to UW-Madison, going to QQ's uh-huh. is like, especially if you were in the engineering side of the campus, yeah. that's like a rite of passage. It's I can't tell you how many of meals age. I've had there. I actually like their pepper chicken better, but... I, that's yeah. my second favorite. Okay, so. okay, <laughs> fine. Close. Yeah. <laughs> All right, is it my turn yep, again? second. Okay. Um, there's so many to pick from. Actually, I'll pick, I'll pick a dessert this okay. time. Lava cakes. Oh, oh no. my God. It's got to be that, it's, like, it's got to be the simple lava cake with the gooey chocolate on the inside and just like your typical French vanilla ice cream. Just like nice creamy french vanilla ice cream i'm gonna have to disagree with you on that i i think they're so hard to get good because they're oh. it's always dry no no i i'm open i'm open to hearing so there's the obviously one. restaurants that do it well so mm-hmm. if you if you go to really nice italian restaurants i think you can get good lava cakes okay honestly though for for students like us trader joe's lava cake is like next level and you got to put it in the microwave for exactly 56 seconds anymore uh-huh. you burn it <laughs> Any less, the chocolate isn't melted enough. Wow. And then you get their French vanilla ice cream. Like, I promise I'm not sponsored by Trader Joe's in no, any no, way, I but agree. I would love to be. <laughs> I agree. Because I love their lava cake. Well, and Trader Joe's has, I think Trader Joe's has the best vanilla ice cream in the yes. world. In the world. Yes. It, and I actually talked to, the, I mean, obviously their, their uh, cashiers are always so friendly. Yeah. I talked to them about the ice cream and it's this super premium, premium ice yes. cream. It says that on the label. And what I learned is super premium is actually, it's not just a marketing technique. It is actually a quality. Uh, it's a level of quality that they have to reach in order to get that title. So wow. it, it has to do with like how much fat they're able to like mix into the ice cream. And Great. it totally adds the creaminess. And, okay, uh, good. So like my, my heart disease index went out, but that's okay. It's yeah, totally worth it. You're choosing great yeah. heart heart items. This yeah. is like your risk benefit. Thing. Yeah. Once in a while, the benefit always. Here. Exactly. That's <laughs> um, the person defending in heart disease research, but that's okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean separation of work and, and yeah life, life is, and work yeah. work life balance yeah yeah um my second pick is gonna be it's pretty simple it's the chick-fil-a chicken sandwich oh I, do you get the spicy or the non-spicy i get the non-spicy okay i'm gonna vote spicy but okay good. that no and i i agree i think it's it's very good as well but yeah. i mean to me i can eat i could eat so many of those yeah. and actually i feel pretty good after them like that's pretty rare for fast food yeah. for you to be like i feel okay and chick-fil-a i feel like invigorated yeah have yeah. you tried dave's hot chicken yet Ooh, which... Nate, add that to your list. Is that if a you restaurant? Like Chick-fil-A, it's new. They just opened around here. Oh. Um, Dave's Hot Chicken. Literally, it's just like a chicken tender. If you don't want spice, you can get their mild, and it still has like that dry rub on it without the heat. Yes. Um, And they, they're sliders. It's like they just put like a slaw in this really soft bun, and it's amazing. No. If you like Chick-fil-A sandwiches, you'll like these as well. I'm sold. Yeah. Well, that can be our next trip. <laughs> <laughs> um... Okay, I think now we gotta go to like something appetizery. I like that you're choosing a variety. Like genres, yeah. I'm. Oh, this is hard. So, okay, I know what I'm gonna say for my last one. So, for my appetizery, there are. It's a tie between Chicken 65 and Chicken Lollipop, which are both very popular 
chicken-based appetizers that you can get in like most Indian restaurants, but the lollipop is probably a little bit more um, specific to like South Indian or more authentic restaurants. Um, but the Chicken 65 is actually a chef's special. So if you go to any given restaurants and order Chicken 65, it'll always taste different between places. So I love trying it because it's never the same between restaurants. It's phenomenal. It's spicy. And then the chicken lollipop is like what I grew up eating as a child. Huh. It's like, think like chicken, like drumsticks, like American wings, yeah. but um, with like an Indian twist to it. It's very good. That's great. I mean, really yeah. great answer. I have yet to have those. As yeah. you might have, I, I would so, love to try them because I'm As you're probably picking up, I'm going to make you drive an hour with me to Nawabi at some point. I'm sold. Okay. I'm sold. Yeah. I, my, like one of my favorite things like you is trying new yeah. foods. Um, I used to be such a picky eater through high school. And yeah. like, I mean, when we go, every time we travel, it's always, let's find the craziest restaurant because yes, we got to try something new. Yes. Um, okay. My third... I guess I'll go with a simple answer. I, I love ice cream more than anything in the entire world. Yeah. Um, I think ice cream is like, it, it, I'm picking my dessert. Ice cream, like I could have any flavor of ice cream any time of the day as much as I want. And like, I'm going to be really happy. Um, I'm not a huge like other dessert person. Like I don't like brownies. I don't like cookies. I don't yeah. like cake, but ice cream is just my favorite thing in the world. Really? Okay. Uh, especially custard, like, cause yeah. custard, they mix in the egg yolk and, yep, um, yep. it's just adds this creaminess that you can't beat. Okay. All right. I'll take it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. My last one, I'm going to have to say two because I'm a foodie neat. So I think I, I yeah, that's two. fine. I'm going to have to say dumplings and Mapu tofu. Like okay. dumplings, these have got to be just like your typical steamed dumplings. And if there's anyone listening from Madison, there's a place called Chen's Dumplings <laughs> that got me into dumplings in the first place. Wow. Like there's like four or five types of dumplings you can order off their menu. So it's limited and they're all phenomenal. Like they oh. are so juicy what and do they flavorful. Have um, my favorite is like Three Delights. Um, and I think they put chicken, shrimp, pork, and like veggies, like mushrooms and stuff like that okay. in it. Um and chives and it's just so flavorful. I wow. love dumplings. So actually one of the things that I do when I travel is in kind of bigger cities, dumplings are, or there's a, when there's a bigger Asian presence in general, yeah. their dumplings are like next level. So wow. I love seeking out good dumpling places in Boston when I went there, I found some. Seattle surprisingly has some of the best dumplings I've ever had. So I always go find dumplings where I go. Huh. Um, and Mapu tofu is literally just like squishy tofu in like a really yummy sauce with like peppercorn and like some spices and like it's phenomenal you literally just eat it with white rice and, and it's like comfort food so how, how do i say that and where do i go to get it mapu tofu mapu tofu Sichuan in west Alice. wow it's amazing i don't even need yelp i don't need any yeah. i just need you Gopika. just need me yeah. yes <laughs> that's amazing okay all awesome and that's close by too yeah yeah um okay that's great i think my fourth is going to be like tom ka soup Ooh, yes it is my favorite in the world. I, it's, I think it's, it's Thai. It's considered yeah. a Thai food. Um, for those who haven't had it, I think like what makes Thai food unique is obviously the coconut milk. Coconut milk is huge in Thai. Yep. But then the fact that you can have super spicy foods and it's balanced by the coconut milk is like, yes. it, I don't know why people don't talk about that enough. Yes. It's, it's incredible. So tomka soup is, is been like my favorite thing. I actually make really good tomka soup. No yeah. way. So, okay. I guess you're going to cook for me. And too. I can show you, I can show you, I, I have no recipe. I go off of taste. So, you know, I, I add the fish sauce. I add, I add peanut butter. Okay. I kind of, I kind of experiment with myself. So maybe it's not true tomka soup, but I kind of base it off of that. Okay. Yeah, so. That's awesome. Well, that was a great 
recap i also didn't i kind of forgot forgot like what a you are a yelper like you are yelp in in in, in human, human form. form yeah uh like the fact that you can just name off the restaurant and the exact food and, oh yeah and you said thai i have a list i have to send you after don't even worry well i've struggled to find yeah. good thai food i love thai food oh there's so many here you have to go like you know for me i, I love the good old hole in the wall restaurant so like when you walk into the places that i'm telling you you're not gonna find like the best service and the most beautiful seating yeah. like no but you'll go in and find some of the most like authentic loving people yeah. there'll be just families running these restaurants um so siam thai around this area is one of those and it's phenomenal and where Probably, is that located it's right across from the va um actually okay. on national avenue and it's amazing That's and like great. the person that runs it she is so kind so sweet i love her i literally go there for that <laughs> well this is this is yeah, great news because i've been searching it. for a place i've struggled yeah. honestly try cm kin is really good yep. um but you know they're definitely a unique kind of form they do the sushi they do the yeah. thai they do the but this is like very authentic mom and pops thai restaurant mm-hmm. so you'll love that okay this yeah. is great um so now after we kind of finish our vital four um do I think I won that? Uh, no, I think it's I think it's a good balance. Yeah, it's food, <laughs> Nate. I have to. <laughs> no, I think your your picks were much more unique. I, I think that's exactly what you we were going for. Um, but yeah, so now we're gonna move into more like personal insights. We covered a lot about like your academic career, what makes you tick, your mentorship, um, which was awesome to learn about. That was so cool. I, I think that's amazing because I've seen so much of these components that make you you, but very rarely do we get to see how that came to be i think we all have personal life experiences that make us the person we are and uh, most people don't see that that history all the things that went into you yeah um, that make each person so unique so i really appreciate you sharing that and i think a lot of people will have learned quite a bit thanks um so what aspect of medicine gives you the most sense of purpose we're we're getting into the bigger questions yeah yeah you know i think Thus far in my life, um, having not been in patient care yet, I think um, one of the biggest aspects is honestly seeing the the next generation come up. Mm. And I think that's probably more a reflection of academia than medicine. And I think I've spent a little bit more time just in academic science in general than mm. true hospitals. Um, so that definitely gives me the most purpose in that regard, just mm-hmm. seeing um, amazing students come through and being able to thrive in academia. Again, mentorship. Mentorship. Oh my gosh. Uh, but from the time that I've spent in uh, free clinics mm-hmm. and um, kind of out in the community, I think... Um, the part of medicine that's always been really fulfilling is that the things we're able to do allow people to live more fuller lives, like making them healthier so that they can go on and spend more time with their kids, do the activities that make them excited, um, and just experience life in a more full way. I think that's always something that's driven me uh, towards medicine. And I think that's part of what made me pick the type of research that I do. I would kind of, if I have to put it into one broad bucket, I would probably put it into kind of like preventative cardiology-esque work. Mm-hmm. And even now with Dr. Kothari, I've been trying to move some of some of our uh, research into how do we predict people uh, before they, how do we predict outcomes or bad outcomes before they have it? How do we optimize treatments so that people do better and kind of have a better not just like oh they do better because their disease is cured but they do better because their quality of life is better and i think um that's something that's always driven me in medicine and in research and i think seeing that in clinics and in even the the patients that we're able to help just 
in our very small capacity in free clinics. That I think is really what drives me there. Mm-hmm. That's that's a really good answer. And you yeah. bring up the concept of like health span and lifespan, how you actually want to improve the health span of people yes, by preventing yes. these things and optimizing. And for just if anyone is not familiar with the concept of health and lifespan, like yeah. it's a super important concept because and a lot of research is focusing on that now where um, we have optimized lifespan. A lot of our medicines are always um, kind of treating people at once they have the d- disease and the disease is maybe really debilitating. So the patient might live until 95, but maybe the last 15 years of their life, they were in a wheelchair and um, not to say that's not um, a really fulfilling life, but you know, maybe they weren't able to do the things they really like to do, like hiking. And so now there's a, such an emphasis on prevent prevention. And, yeah. um, so that, that seems awesome that that's been kind of the underlying tone of all of your work. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Um, now away from medicine, what gives your life meaning? What do you like most, um, in your life? What do you value most in your life outside of medicine? Um, definitely family and relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we always talk about my sister and mm-hmm. I think, um, having her in my life definitely gives a lot of purpose mm-hmm. and kind of, um, just, just wanting someone in my life. Like, you know, maybe it's because of the age difference. She's almost like a daughter to me, even though she's my sister. Yeah. Right. And I've kind of seen her grow up. Um, and I think just, just seeing what she does and being around her, I think gives me a lot of purpose outside of, of outside of medicine in that regard. Um, but yeah, and I think a lot of the the ability to work in the community and feel a part of the community also gives me a lot of purpose. I really enjoy um, times when I can go, um, not just volunteer, but we I do a lot of, um, you know, I participate in like the local Tamil Sangam associations mm. and things that kind of bring different communities of people based on identities and things like that. Just being a part of that also just brings me a lot of purpose because yeah. I think it kind of makes you feel like you're part of something bigger. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's been a huge part of your entire life, which I didn't really realize is yeah. like your parents and grandparents instilled that giving back. And, yeah, and yeah. Even if you, when you don't have that much, um, because you said like back in India, maybe you guys were in a single apartment, yeah. single room apartment. Um, and like, we're still giving back to people. And, yeah. and I think that, that speaks volumes because I think we always... We want to like get to that place yeah. where we're like, oh, we're now we're comfortable, comfortable. Now we can give back. Yeah. Um, and I think like giving back doesn't have to happen there. And that's actually something I've learned. Yeah. I haven't actually really told you this, but I've learned that from you and I've learned that from the Society of Asian Academic Surgeons. Cause I think we talked about this. I think yeah. growing up, I, everything I've done is really transactional. I, I think if I do something for you, it's like, I expect something back. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think if I, if I pay for a meal, I like you expect a meal in return. And like, honestly, within the past year or two, just being around, I've been around a lot of more Asian colleagues and culturally it's like they give and they expect nothing in return. That's like maybe the thing I've gained most from you and I've gained from other colleagues and friends is like, what a cool thing to, to just give and, and, um, it doesn't have to be financial givings. It can be time. It can be anything. And like, there's yeah. no expectation in return. And I don't know how you, if you yeah. agree with that and, and oh, you've seen I that as well. But... Do. And I think funny enough, my mentors have kind of had to remind me to think about the opposite where there was a time when I was spending so much of my bandwidth kind of doing either one-on-one mentorships or a lot of things that was just what they call free service, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And sometimes at the detriment of doing things that kind of progress our 
careers, mm-hmm. right? Like I would turn down opportunities that um, you might actually need to do in order to progress our careers in order to do that. And I was reminded that it was an incredibly important aspect, but maybe I need to figure out a better balance in being, because if I don't, if I hinder myself moving forward, then I've kind of done nothing, right? I can't give back more in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was actually kind of being reminded of the opposite of being like, no, you do not have to be transactional all the time. But then if you do something and if someone else does something and they get credit and you don't, you need to ask for that credit. Yeah. And I was like, oh, like I, <laughs> that was a concept for me. Um, and, you know, I think we talked about how a lot of life shapes who you are. Mm-hmm. And um, all through, you know, towards the end of high school and through college, a lot of um, I had a couple incredibly close friends who passed away from um, either uh, random just life accidents mm-hmm. or kind of chronic things that they were um, suffering from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also lost my grandparents kind of in the same, or my both my grandpas kind of in, in the span of a couple of years um, from chronic diseases. And I think in a way kind of seeing so much um, death in, in, in such an early time mm-hmm. of my life kind of made me realize how limited our time really is. And I think if we all decide we're going to wait till we there's a benchmark of making it before we decide we're going to help others, mm-hmm. um, there's no there's no guarantee that you're ever going to make it, right? And I think that really struck a chord with me in everything that I did. And I was like, well, if I was like, you know, if God forbid, knock on wood, something happens to me tomorrow, mm-hmm. do I feel satisfied in the way I've lived? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's that's something that I ask myself a lot more lately in, in kind of determining what I do with my time. Yeah, I, I could not agree more because establishing that mindset is difficult it's not an easy one um no. because i think you're all if you're constantly asking yourself well you know if, if i die tomorrow yes, right yeah am i happy i lived my life yesterday yeah. and um i was doing i've talked about doing a lot more meditation recently and like so one of the things that they talked about in those meditations were that um what if you treated every moment as if you would not get another opportunity with that person And I think there's so much strength in that. It's kind of a dark thought, you know, what if I never get that opportunity to interact with that person again, but it's super freeing because now when you walk into a room, I think for me, at least every positive thought I have about someone, I will always say it because you never know what that person is going through. You never know if you're ever going to get that chance to say that thing again. Um, And really we were talking earlier, like the only harm of it is they might think you're weird. Yeah. But I'm okay with it, like them thinking I'm weird because I'm just being myself. I'm being, I'm saying the things that, um, how I truly feel. I think when you treat yourself, people really value that. And like, yeah. it sounds like those were difficult times for you and you kind of had a similar, similar experience, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I fully agree with that where I think in every one of those moments where I, I try really hard to think about, you know, it's, it, it's hard. Like we, you know, you think about you know, man, I wish there's this one additional thing I'd said or done or, or communicated to these people. And it's, um, it's a very difficult thing to live with on a day-to-day where um, it's, it's really complicated to say, oh, well, I don't know if I'm ever going to say that for something. That's such like a morbid way mm-hmm. to think about it, things too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in a grand scheme of things, small things matter, just making more of a cautious effort mm-hmm. uh, to to show people that you love them and to tell them you love them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately it comes from a, a bad place. A lot of times a place of loss. And yes. I mean, you, you talked about some of your friends, um, friends and family, like losing them. I think, uh, you know, I, people are constantly going through that type of thing. And yeah. I think there's an opportunity there. 
um, no, even if it is really sad. Um, cause I like, yeah. gosh, I mean, when, when you have friends, really close friends that are your age who, um, you, you know, become really sick. I mean, I think every day you wake up with potentially a sense of guilt because you're saying, yes. you know, what, yes. what allowed them to be sick and, and not yeah. me, you know, I am given this opportunity. And I think you can go about it in two ways. One way is like, okay, um, this is really, this is really sad. And, um, you know, you can feel guilty about it. I think on the flip side, you can say, well, I'm, I have this opportunity now. I can sulk about this or I can live my life to the absolute fullest, knowing that that's what that person would do or want to do. Um, I think for me that, that makes me feel a little bit better about the situation because you live your life now more freely. Um, keeping that in mind. Absolutely. And I think it kind of set the tone for, what medicine and being in medical school really meant for me because mm-hmm. um, you know it was it was actually a really way of starting it where on the day of our white coat ceremony um it was when my grandpa passed away wow. so that morning um i remember my we got into two separate cars my parents took a cab and had to get to the i dropped them off um at like, at like a, a bus station to get to the airport um and I got in the car and drove to the white coat ceremony. Um, and at that point, I didn't have enough vacation to go to India for his funeral and uh, be there and come back and start medical school. And um, it got really complicated, so I, I, I couldn't go with them. And it was a, a stark realization, not only of sacrifices that's what, that we sometimes make to mm-hmm. be in medicine, um, but I think also about like moments when medicine kind of wasn't sufficient to save people right and um grandpa died from complications from heart surgery Mm -hmm. uh actually and um i think it was it was just kind of a a big wake-up call in lots of different ways and it really made me think about you know being in medicine is truly a gift Mm -hmm. and um if i can make life a little better for people who are facing things that my family faced in that moment then Mm -hmm. that's that's that i would consider that a life well lived yeah completely complete right well and it's so the timing of that's so interesting because at a time where your grandpa played a huge role in your life and, and he passes away, but then you're starting this new chapter of your life with medical school. I mean, I, that's like, that speaks huge volumes. I'm sure like, yeah. you know, you now are now living this life and if you, you know, suck about it, whatever, I think it, it is a really sad moment, but I think you, the way you've lived and gone throughout medical school, I think that's something to totally be proud of, you know? starting that chapter and like doing it to the fullest degree Absolutely. um yeah sure he's very proud you know um so so that was a really really good good conversation um and thank you for sharing that so um i guess so outside of what's one goal that you have for your professional career and then we'll flip it and say what's one goal that you have for outside of your your medical career i think the main reason I got into MD-PhD was, you know, we always think about right right now if I had to apply and go into surgery, right? And I think I always thought about medicine as what can I do to make things better for the person that's in front of me today? Mm. And I think that's where I get a lot of draw towards surgery because you can see patients getting better um, in a short time frame and what you do can actually drastically change the way they came into the hospital versus how they live. And mm-hmm. I think that really draw, drew me to the surgery part of it. Um, but then with my research, I think if there's one thing that um if 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 life worked out i would really like to do is actually do something that moves the needle on kind of that health span that we talked about Mm. making people healthier like if i did my career well i would want one less person to come to the or to me 
mm. I would or come to the OR much later mm-hmm. because they lived healthier longer. And I think if there's anything I could do to kind of move the needle in that regard, I would consider that a very fulfilling professional career um, yeah. in that regard. Um, the balance which is funny because I'm, yeah, I'm giving yeah. myself, you know, I'm hurting my own job security if I do things well, but that, that's exactly <laughs> what I want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and then I think on the um, flip side of it, in my personal life, you know, it's hard because I think in the in the short time frame when I I'm, I'm gonna assume when you say personal like very me centric or just family and th- that centric either either way okay. just, I just like outside of yeah. medicine generally okay I would say from a me centric standpoint um, it would probably be to kind of live healthier in a physical and mental way mm. in, in both of those regards because I think in order to do our professional job um, which influences so many people's and so many lives mm. and to be a good person to my family and to the relationships I care about, it is important that I show up in a, in a healthy way. Um, and I think that's really driven, you know me, I'm a foodie. I love to eat out all the time, but I was like, ah, heart disease runs in my family pretty badly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so maybe, maybe I need to get a little better physically in that regard. And also from a mental standpoint, um, really being able to be present in the moment um, and you know, they all, I, I think one of my favorite sayings is there's a space between something happening and you reacting. And I want to be better about being more cautious in that space mm-hmm. and, um, make sure that the reactions or things that I have are positive towards the people that I love and care about. So mm-hmm. I think those are kind of the things that I want to be like personally always focused on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in a broader personal goal, I, I have this dream someday of being, able to run a true philanthropic organization that can support causes that I really care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, now medicine has gotten to a point where it is true that if you have the money and the resources to hire someone that can write your application or edit your application and do mock interviews and mm-hmm. do all of that, you're more likely to get in. Or if you can hire someone that can get you a connection to someone in medicine and they write you a great lark letter, you can get in. And I think that leaves behind a lot of amazingly talented students who just happen to be born in a family or a place that didn't have that resources. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if there's something I could do eventually um, to kind of move the needle on that and give those students just the same opportunities as well, mm-hmm. um, that would that's something that I hope I can kind of personally do. I guess that ties my professional and personal a little, but yeah. that would be like, there's one thing I could do. I would love that. That's so, amazing. Bill Gates, if you're listening to this, please give me money. <laughs> yeah, give me money to support future yeah. students. What, where do you think the your desire to like support the next generation has come from? You know, that's a great question. I, If I had to guess, it probably does come from my upbringing. Mm-hmm. Um, ever since I remember... Um, me going home to visit my grandparents was always surrounded by all of these kids from the village who came. And my grandma was very cautious about if students couldn't pay, she would not ask for money. And if she knew they couldn't eat, she would make sure they ate before she left the tutoring service, mm. right? And it's not like they had a ton of money then. They lived in a tiny apartment, like in a in a tiny home back mm. then, right? With a bunch of kids to feed. They took care of extended family. So it's not like they were doing great in money that they could do that. But that was the environment I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And then coming back with uh, my dad, ever since I remember, he always tried to sponsor a child. Mm-hmm. Or, um, I celebrated birthdays um, by using the money that we had to give to orphanages rather than doing like a big party for mm-hmm. myself and my friends. And um, that was just how I grew up. So I think I always kind of, and probably a big part of it was also seeing how much 
the education that my parents were able to get after I was born and things like that really changed the course of my life, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think I would be here right now if they weren't provided the opportunities that they were provided for mm-hmm. us to come live here. Um, so I think a combination of all of those things just really made me realize how much early influences in life can drastically shape what you end up doing yeah. in your life and career. Totally. And yeah. I've totally seen that in your own career. What And you bring up your grandma, like she is is organizing or it was it teaching was it education yeah yeah she was a um she taught eighth grade we don't have the concept of like high school and middle school it's just k-12 so she taught english in a k-12 school back then so the concept of teaching or providing a service and then not asking for money from people who aren't able to afford afford it is like it's pretty much non-existent in the united states yeah um do you think that there's an opportunity for that because hearing that is so cool and i think like we we live yeah. within the rules of that our society has built we we say if you don't have this we can't provide this to you it's not fair to others but yeah. i think this is such a community-driven approach How, I mean, like is it possible that's where you know if you think about it on a larger scale khan academy did exactly that mm. i mean i did not have enough resources to buy a whole bunch of mcat prep mm. i did a significant chunk of my mcat prep through khan academy same completely <laughs> free right like you didn't have to pay a penny uh-huh. um so i think I think there's opportunities for that. And F1 Doctors provides completely free voluntary mentorship. It's run by a volunteer board. And um, any student that reaches out to me gets to talk to me completely free of charge. I will say there's some limitations to that. I think the greater, the more and more we progress in our careers, our time gets so much Mm -hmm. more limited. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how to do this the right way, where sometimes I'll get messages from extremely wealthy kids who can afford those services. Mm -hmm. And now my time is so limited, the students who I know need my services might not get that same time. But how do you balance that? How do I, how do you ask for that? And I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, just because someone's family is rich, I don't want to assume the kids are going to have that money. And it's such a complicated social structure to say who gets to pay and who doesn't. And yeah. I think that's the challenges that scholarships communities have. That's the challenges that diversity, equity, and inclusion offices have. Like, it's it's kind of a more global challenge. But I think, um, I think there is an opportunity for people to start doing yeah. that in a small scale. I mean, here in Milwaukee, we actually established a partnership with Riverside High School. I was the... Yeah. Um, community service chair for AWS for a year. And I was like, you know what, if we're going to do community service, let's, I really wanted it to be educational. So I reached out to a, a high school teacher in Riverside High School, and she ran a course for students who are interested in health careers in general. And so we went and spent, you know, twice, you know, once or twice a month, depending on time, ran journal clubs for these students. And in that process, not only did they get to understand what research was, we had career Q&A panels from like PAs, nurses, doctors, like all di- like engineering, biomedical engineers, like a variety of health careers. So they had exposure to all of these. Mm-hmm. And then us students actually being there, we take them like donuts and food and just hang out with them. Mm-hmm. And they were able to ask us a lot more personal questions. So many of them asked me about how did I afford medical school? What was mm-hmm. that like? Like, how do you balance things? And I think um, small things like that moves the needle. It's not a full-time teaching gig. It's yeah. only, you know, a couple months, but it's still something small wow. it's to do something. Yeah. Honestly, asking that question, when it came out of my, out of my mouth, I thought she's not going to have a good answer to this. Cause this oh, is, yeah. it's, it's, well, it's such a difficult question. Is, and and really yeah. that was a really, really powerful answer. Cause like you've shown that you have been able to do that even in the, in the United States. Cause I, yeah. I personally, I haven't been able to see that much of that opportunity, obviously yeah. giving, yeah. giving back, you can mentor students, but I mean, so many, um, material examples of that is, it's awesome. Absolutely. Um, the last question that I kind of like to end on is, you know, looking back on your life, looking back on your career, what kind of legacy do you hope to 
have when they say Gopika Santhal Kumar? What 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 do you hope people talk about? You know, I that's a hard one. I think in the in the in the more granular sense, I hope that the things that I said about like long term roles actually manifest and um, that's something that, that kind of is something that is tied to, you know, what she, yeah, she, like she did do all of these things that she really wanted to before she left. Um, but I think in a, in a more real sense, I would hope that people feel that I was a person that showed them care and love and showed them that, um, they, that, that, that our relationship or what in that moment mattered. And it was something that was important to me mm-hmm. and that I hope that every person in my life feels a sense of, um, kind of importance and, and that they were cared for yeah. um, and that in our conversations they felt happy mm-hmm. and that they they felt um, good leaving from that. I yeah. think that would be something that I, I really hope for. It's, you know, it, it's so hard thinking about that because in academia, it's so hard to please everyone. And I think you have to be very cautious not to be a people pleaser. But at the same time, oh my um, it's, it's a balance of making sure you make that I make my best effort to at least leave most people in kind of what I hope is a happier state Yeah. <laughs> um, in my interactions. So, okay. That was, that was a great answer. Cause I think um, kind of what Carson Gale talked about last week is a, a relational legacy, how we like the things you value most or look back on is you want to know, you want people to remember how you treated them and how they yeah. made you feel or how you made them feel. <laughs> Um, the question about people pleasing is so difficult because in academia, academia, you want to kind of please everyone, but that's never going to happen. Have, have there been stances or, or, or things that have, um, you maybe you've like upset people and like, how did, how do you go about that? Cause that's a really difficult thing. I need all the time. I've yeah. had that in my personal life too. Right. I think where, um, even beyond academia, there's some, there's some, um, friendships that really blossom and there's times when you don't do so well. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, recently there was a Twitter chain that Dr. Justin Dimmick, um, the Michigan chair yeah. posted that really resonated with me where there are moments where, you know, I'm human. There are moments when I have a really bad day or a really bad months, right? Like stuff happens, life happens. Totally. And, um, I am not able to be my best fullest, um, giving self to that person. And I think there's too much on my mind and not that it excuses it, but I might have not been present in the way that I would hope I would been, or I might not have been supportive when they needed it. Um, and I think looking back, he said something about how, you know what, we all make mistakes, but go back and sincerely apologize. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, I think that's something that I'm going to do more of is just realizing like, you know, Dr. Kothari does this really well where he'll sometimes reach out to me and be like, Hey, I feel like I was short with you in that meeting. Mm -hmm. I had a really long day. Are Mm -hmm. you okay? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I really want to make sure that Everything you needed got addressed, and I'm so sorry if I treated you and I was short with you. And it makes such a big difference, and I started doing that even with my mentees, where sometimes I'll reach out and I'll give them really short answers because I want to help them, but I'm in such a rush. And then I'll reach out and be like, I am so sorry for mm-hmm. how short I was with you. Did you get everything you need? Is there anything more I can do to help? I'm sorry I wasn't able to be that. And mm-hmm. I think um, hopefully that changes things in the future. Yeah. But in academia, Nate, it's more complicated, right? Academia can get competitive. Mm-hmm. There's been... Um, especially when you're in the entrepreneurial space, there's times when people are trying to um, have been in situations and teams where people want to take credit for your work a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of complicated, um, new, nuanced situations in academia. And I think there are times when you have to put your foot down and ha- have a sense of not respect, 
um, but a sense of you and say, you know what, there is a level of disrespect that mm-hmm. I will accept and mm-hmm. there is a level of um, mistreatment that I will accept. Mm-hmm. And honestly, that level should be pretty low. Yeah. And I think if, when it crosses that bridge, that's not really a person that I hope to leave any type of legacy on yeah. because they didn't care enough to treat me well, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. I think that was really hard to do. That was that was like a school of hard knocks too where being in situations where things went bad and I didn't advocate for myself or mm-hmm. let myself get mistreated and then going back and saying, no, I will not stand for that. It's a balance. All of it is a balance. Yeah. But for the people who are genuine and important in my life, I hope that I can kind of portray that. And especially for my patients, I hope I can portray the positives of me. Yeah, I yeah. love it. That's, again, difficult question. Great very answer. difficult yeah. question. Very important question. Yeah. yeah, and you highlight like the importance of understanding your self-worth. You cannot just get rolled over, yes. even though you are... I, we're both people pleasers. Yes! Um, <laughs> and like I've, I've definitely been rolled over quite a bit yeah, this year in particular, and figuring out when you want to make that stand and yeah. say, you know, hey, I, I do have worth in this situation. Yes. Um, I've been like, I constantly have been telling myself this year, like, you got to be confident in these situations because you, you are worthy and this is your place. And you mentioned the, yeah. um, you know, imposter syndrome, like, so it's just... It's, it's all balance. And we it, gotta... it definitely is. And it's one of the things I tell my mentees most, like ask and you shall receive. Like mm. self-advocacy is a huge piece of academia. Mm. And I think there's a delicate balance of being confident mm. and um, advocating for yourself and your self-promotion while also kind of balancing the other side of, of giving back and, and in being able to make sure that the other people feel cared for. It's, it's a progressive thing. I'm constantly, again, that's why it's on my list of things I want to kind of the idea between between something happening and a reaction, there's space. And I think that's kind of the full circle of why. I think that's something I really want to foster better about how I react to situations because I think that can really help make better decisions in all of these complex situations that we really can't boil down mm-hmm. in our in our life and career. I I said that a legacy was the last question, but I just came just had another question that oh, popped please. up in my head. It's the last one. And this is a difficult one. And you have to choose one. Okay. If you could have one trait as a physician would you prefer would you what do you think is more important humility or confidence think on it because it's really difficult and you can't say both you know what i think in this day and age i will say humility because i think there was a time in life when medicine truly was an art there Mm. was not much that we knew Right. And it was so much of an art. There were still a lot of people trying things and you had to have a certain level of confidence to say, you know what, man, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm going to do everything I can to help this patient. So I understand why confidence became such an important trait. I think in this day and age, we have so much information and tools available, like up to date access to experts throughout the country, literally in a tap of a phone. And I think confidence sometimes over humility, the confidence in not in the setting of lack of humility might drive people to make self decisions without Mm -hmm. understanding that they have access to more Mm -hmm. versus I think someone that's humble might not might maybe rely too much on double checking and kind of really making sure that they're looking at what's best. But if I had to pick, I would rather give the best thing that's out there for my patient. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go with humility. Yeah. Yeah. I've asked a lot of people that question because it's a really difficult question. Personally, I say, 
confidence, but a lot of times it's what we most lack is the thing we, we begin to value the most. And for me, yeah. like in, in some of the experiences that I've had, I've lacked confidence, but your answer yeah. was the best answer I've heard of. Oh, it was very thoughtful. Like I, yeah, I, yeah. I wouldn't have connected all those, all those different things about we, we have access to so much more information now. And, um, like, yeah. I think the humility part in those instances ultimately potentially provides better patient care. So I agree. Yeah. Weirdly enough, I think the PhD part not only taught me the science, but the humility part, like the more, so the PhD is supposed to train you to be an expert in like one tiny content area, right? Mm-hmm. That's the whole premise of it. And the more I learned, the less I realize, the more I realize how little I know. And mm-hmm. I think it's one of those things where it's a, it's like a, a, a contrarian thing where you would think the more you learn, the better you'd feel about how much you know, but the more you learn, you realize like, oh man, there's so much more in the world and there's so many smart people in this world that you're like, oh, like I have so much more to tackle. Like mm-hmm. this is just the start. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Gopika, this was an outstanding conversation. I think we can summarize yes. it. Um, definitely talked a ton about mentorship. We talked a ton about the importance of our family and then like the importance of recognizing moments for what they are and, and being so present within them and, and making the right decisions in those situations and understanding the gravity of our actions and our words um, and how impactful they can be. Um, thank you for, for this conversation. Do you have any final thoughts for any anyone <laughs> listening? Anything that you want to leave them with? Yeah, Nate, I, this was a, an amazing, amazing conversation. And I think, you know, I want to commend you on the types of questions that you came up with and what you're really doing here with this podcast. Because, you know, I think a lot of times medical people... Um, and, and for a lot of the business side reasons, I would argue kind of, we get, we get a little bit of a bad rep. And I think, um, what you're doing actually shows a lot of the human side of the things that we go through and feel. And I really hope that, um, I, for the next generation, for the patients, for other people in our shoes, um, it kind of really provides a holistic perspective of how, um, human we all are, mm-hmm. which like when you, like you said at the beginning, we do not talk about enough in medicine. We're so type A. We're so old. Oh, just look at my numbers and accomplishments. We don't realize how much the human behind there really is driving that. Mm-hmm. And you're um, so I, it's just this is a great podcast, Nate. And I am so impressed with everything that you do. And you really do need to do a podcast on yourself at one of these. Um, <laughs> you sound but, like my mom. <laughs> uh, yes, I agree with your mom wholeheartedly. But um, just just a. a Great job on this. I think this is going to really help a lot of people. I really appreciate your kind words. And uh, again, thank you for joining. Of course. Thanks, Nate. Thank you for joining us on the human side of healing. I hope you found today's conversation as insightful and enjoyable as I did. It's an amazing experience to learn about the life of another member of our learning community and see the world through their eyes. If you've been inspired by our discussion and have your own story to share, or if you simply want to connect, please feel free to reach out. You can email me, send a text, or contact me on Twitter at Nate underscore Verhagen. Your stories are the heartbeat of this podcast, and I look forward to bringing you more inspiring journeys from our community. Until the next time on the human side of healing, stay curious and stay connected.